and welcome to Coco Pods, a podcast of the Broad Center for Natural Deliveries Foundation. My name is Dr. Bola Sogade. I'm the host of this show. Today, we're very fortunate to have with us Dr. Mary Joy Weathersby, MD, FACOG. So, you know, with the, are there advantages to a cesarean section? I mean, the some some women, you know, after a vaginal birth, they have, you know, weakness of the pelvic muscles, they have prolapse, they have uh, fourth degree lacerations that can can make them leak uh, feces or urine. So, I mean, would you consider the absence of these as a possible advantage of having a cesarean section or what are the advantages of having a cesarean section? Good question. Now, for there, there are some women who have, you know, thought that they didn't want any more children and went ahead and had certain type of procedures done, meaning they had um, uh, stress incontinence procedures. Stress incontinence mean they leak a little bit and they went to see a certain doctor, special doctor, and, and now they got their bladder, you know, repaired and and oftentimes, you know, usually we, we do um, like for patients to have that, but then to have a delivery after that oftentimes can uh, damage that repair. Um, so some patients will say, you know what, I, I, I don't want to chance um, my, my, my bladder um, repair that I did to help me to stop leaking. I don't want to push and potentially damage that repair. I'd much rather do an elective C-section. And, and, and some women uh, um, elect for that. And typically, if circumstances are good, we typically will do that at 39 weeks um, and allow for the patients to deliver by C-section for that reason. There's advantages to C-sections and advantages to not having C-sections. The biggest thing is where the person's um, where they are in their life, what's what's going on. There's definite risk of multiple, many, 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 many repeat C-sections. It's very difficult to tell a woman how many C-sections you can have. That's not something that any governing body or anybody can tell a woman. Um, and that's not something that ACOG, you know, that is our governing body that even tell a woman, I mean, does not do that. But um, we will definitely say the more C-sections, the more risk. Each and every one increases risk um, to the woman and potentially definitely to, to the pregnancy, to the baby, um, to to herself. So if she is able to successfully be back under the correct um, conditions, we are happy with that to increase her chances of vaginal deliveries. Yes. But not everybody will and not everybody will be able to. And um Oftentimes, uh, we, we kind of have to look at the pregnancy that is at hand more so than the potential future pregnancies. Sometimes there is a reason to do that C-section because you're trying to protect the pregnancy that you have at the moment versus the patient's future pregnancies. And that is important to also think about the future pregnancies. But if you really need a C-section for this pregnancy, um, you, you do need to do that C-section. Most most OBGYNs will say do that C-section for this pregnancy. Now, you know, you talked about a trial of labor after cesarean section. That is women that want a vaginal birth after a cesarean section. They can try and see. Now, if a woman is coming from another country and you have no operative records of the kind 
of scar. You talked about the vertical scar. You talked about the vertical uterine scar and the transverse uterine scar. If we absolutely cannot verify, um, you know, and we can have assumptions based on taking history, but if we can verify, would you give a woman a trial of labor uh, if the records are not available coming in internationally? Uh, um, because rec all records really should be available in the United States as much as possible. But would you give a trial of labor to somebody in which you do not know the kind of uterine scar that she has? That's a very good question and a very tough question because um, you definitely want to give a trial of labor wherever you can. You know, if it's if it's um, medically safe, if you're if you are, are safe enough, you know, because you can't. There's no way to be 100% safe with the VBAC. That does it. It's not truly realistic, um, and I do explain that to patients, but. If you're able to, and if patients are able to, you definitely want to try that. But it's very difficult because um, you're right, taking a very good history, you're finding out how, how far along was she? Were you 28 weeks when you had a C-section? Or were you 39 weeks? Were you 40 weeks when you had a C-section? Did they say your baby... Um, was tilted, that they said the baby's head was up, that they say you had a bicornate uterus, meaning a different shape of your uterus, that they say, oh, this was very difficult, that, that your doctors warn you in the future to always have a C-section, that they say anything like that to you. You ask a lot of questions to try to find out. And let's say all of those questions are benign, meaning they don't really lead you to anything. And you're still stuck with, well, you know, the patient doesn't know. She just knows the scar that's on her skin, um, which is not the same as the scar that's on your uterus. And she's not sure. Um, well, for me, for myself, I have a certain level of uh, comfortability to not do that because I don't have enough information and I'm potentially putting my patient at an unnecessary risk, not knowing what type of uterine scar she has. If she potentially, because you're 39 weeks, does not mean you're going to have a, a lower segment transverse cesarean. Some people at 39 weeks, for different reasons, do have vertical incisions or have a lower uterine segment that starts out lower uterine, but then they have to, what we call tee up, go upwards for different reasons. Um, so not having that information is very difficult to say, well, I'm going to potentially do a VBAC not knowing what type of risk factors you are in. I typically spend a lot of time in counseling and telling the pros and cons and also in telling how I feel. And I do this typically in the very first uh, meeting because I want the patient to feel comfortable and I want the patient to understand where I'm coming from, the reasons why I say this and what ACOG also says. And I also want the patient to understand, well, if you're working with me as your OBGYN, Unless you can help me, and even if it comes in a different language, that doesn't deter me. We can always get interpreters. That's very easy. Whichever language it's in, we've been able to get that. Um, but if we're just not able to get it at all, that's not very good. Um, so if the patient is still wanting to have me as their OBGYN, for me, under those circumstances, usually it's going to be a repeat C-section because I just have too little information and the risk is greater than I'm willing to take a patient and a patient's baby. I'm not willing to risk compromise to the patient or the ba baby um, uh, under those circumstances. 
Now, where does uh, the American College of OBGYN stand if you've had more than one C-section? And some patients have had uh, more than one C-section, multiple C-sections, and they wonder if they can try to deliver a baby vaginally. And, you know, can you talk to us some about that? Okay. Well, um, you always want to get a very good history. You always want to also find out um, how did they deliver. Um, and you, as much as you're able, you want to get the um, the reports on what happened on the uterine scar. Not necessarily the patient's skin incision. Most patients understand their skin incision, but most do not know what actually happened on the uterine scar. And so this is where you have to get the reports from the hospital that it occurred as much as you're able. In the United States, it should not be a problem at all. Um, should be able to get that. Uh, the the risk factor does come after even one um, uterine scar. Again, that uterus, once it's scarred once, even for a myomectomy, not even for a C-section, it is never as strong as it was before it was ever scarred. It never will be. And so all it does is lose its strength, especially in the pregnancy. And especially depend upon how far apart the, the uterus needs at least what we say recommend between one C-section to another, one delivery to another is at least um, eight, the 18 months in between. So um, some some patients just had a C-section and then maybe six months later, they're pregnant. And so now they're less than 18 months apart and want to try the VBAC. Um, there's some risk with that. And then there's definitely risk with having multiple C-sections, um, having that the risk increases. So there's a lot of conversation that one person's situation may have been a, a good situation for a VBAC, but another patient's situation is not a good situation for a VBAC. And what I mean by that is some patients may say, well, my 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 uh, my sister just had a VBAC. I want a VBAC. And then her situation is so different from her sister's situation. So just because one has one thing and another may not be a good candidate for another, for, for the same thing. Now, after one C-section, I have had patients have a repeat C-section and I notice what we call a very thin window, a window where um, in the uterus, it, it's a muscle. The uterus is really a big, thick muscle and it should look like a muscle. But when we call it a uterine window is when it no longer looks like a muscle. It looks as thin, like paper thin, like you could read a newspaper through it. We call that a window. That is incredibly dangerous because the next step is a rupture. The next step is that that thin window opens. And so there's that potential that we've all, as OBGYNs, if you see enough, if you do enough, if you've been around enough, you tend to have seen it, that we call these, these uterine windows where we say, wow, it wouldn't have taken much more time before this potentially could have been a rupture. And you're very grateful that it was not. So I do not recommend patients having more than one that um, C-section do a VBAC. I do not recommend it. I have seen where um, there's risk, tremendous risk involved in, in, in doing so. Um, and definitely there's a lot of conversation between patient and doctor. And 
I we love to have these conversations as early as even even the first visit so that patients can feel comfortable that this is the direction of the pregnancy if the patient is having it um, with me as their OBGYN. And this is um, what we're looking for. And this is um, the patient and myself. This, these are our expectations. These are the patient's expectations. And these are what I can meet um, as the patient's expectations. And the patient will decide if she's comfortable with that. But I'm constantly looking for what is the safest possible outcome for the patient and this pregnancy and the patient's preg- and the and the baby. And I have seen it to where more than two, two or more usually is not that safe. Usually does lead. I, I have seen it where I am more comfortable with one um, prior C-section under the correct under certain situations for a trial of VBAC. And patients do sign a consent form for a VBAC. I do, and that is common across the nation, actually. We do sit and we talk about it, and we have a form that, you know, these can happen and this can happen, and so that patients are very well informed. Most patients having a VBAC need to be very well informed of these are some risks, and so you understand the risk, and the risk could potentially happen to you. And if it does happen to you, you understand that risk um, and you accept that risk that you understand that, yes, I'm accepting that I'm putting myself under these potential liability and I accept that the patient must accept that. So, yes, we have a consent form. And then again, in the hospital, the hospital has a consent form for the patient to also sign once they reach to the hospital to um, my Usually, um, I would recommend after one patients to be back after one C-section. And once they've had uh, more than that, for the risk, I'm not comfortable having um, a VBAC after that. And definitely the, this attempt at a vaginal, vaginal birth after cesarean section in a process called a trial of labor after cesarean section should happen not at home, not in a freestanding birthing center setting, but in a hospital setting because of the risks that you've mentioned that could happen so that the risk could be mitigated or, and when they happen, they can be properly and quickly managed uh, for uh, both the mother and the baby. We, we definitely um, recommend that and, that, and that's totally what we do. Uh, a VBAC is a, cat- if it goes wrong, is a catastrophic and it has every chance of going wrong. That's the reason why we talk about it so much with our patients. Um, it has every chance and we only do it in the hospital setting. That is definitely what is recommended only in the hospital setting. And even when you're in the hospital setting, it can still be a catastrophic emergency that it can still have really bad outcome, even in the hospital setting. Even when we deliver the baby in under 60 seconds, it can still have catastrophic outcome. It can still be pretty significant. So okay. we definitely have many cases of successful VBACs when we do it in controlled setting and when we do it with um, meeting the certain criteria. And when patient and doctor communicate very well and patients are accepting of the liability under um, 
with consent forms signed by the um, patient for the office and then also for the um, hospital. So under certain circumstances, yes, VBAC can be very successful and we do um, want our patients to do that under the certain circumstances. But outside of that, it can be incredibly catastrophic. Thank you. So what is the recovery time period or frame after a cesarean section? And then when the woman goes home, what are the things that she must absolutely pay attention to and call her doctor provider for when these things happen? Um, Before she leaves, we want her to feel good. So uh, we want her to feel as though she understands lactation if she desires to lactate. And we definitely encourage patients to do that for as long as they're able. And so most of the times lactation can be a little bit difficult because the milk typically comes in around day four day to day eight. So you're already home before, you know, um, you're at home before the milk really comes in. But we still have great nurses and lactation nurses that can begin the colostrum, the, 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 the pre-things um, beforehand um, that can kind of help. Uh, teach patients and teach babies and give you little tips on how to do that. So we want patients who want to lactate to feel comfortable and even patients who decide to use formula or those who decide to do both. We want you to feel comfortable on how to produce, on how to do it, how to mix it, how to have it. And, and then also um, on how to gauge how your babies eat and how to monitor. And we actually do want you to keep a record in the hospital. We teach you how to do that. Keep a record of at this time, my baby ate this, at this time, my baby ate that and this much and making sure that your baby's getting the enough um, um, ounces of, of food um, at the proper every two to three hour feed-ins. So we want you to feel comfortable with doing that, comfortable with changing the diaper, comfortable putting your baby in a car seat. Before you leave the hospital, you must have a car seat and you must prove that the car seat meets standard. So it must be a new car seat, a car seat that is current, recent. It can't be a car seat that maybe you used three years ago for your other baby, you know, or maybe you, you maybe somebody um, gave you um, in your family member a few years back. It needs to be a recent current car seat um, that passes inspection for the for the current year. And before leaving the hospital, you need to make sure that you have a pediatrician. Babies go back to see their doctors, the pediatrician, within a day or two of being discharged. So you must, and I ask my patients, even before they go into the hospital, around 30, 28 to 36 weeks, do you already have a pediatrician? You need to start already figuring that out so that your baby already has the location of where your baby's going to go for the follow-up care. Babies need follow-up care. Often checking Billy Rubens for jaundice and being sure uh, other things baby um babies oftentimes lose a little weight initially after they're born and pick it back up but the pediatrician needs to make sure that they're um, not losing too much weight and that they're picking it up at an appropriate rate and appropriate amount well that baby needs to be seen a day or two after they're discharged so that's important and these are things that mothers need to kind of already get involved with um, ahead of time now uh, other things that patients definitely needs to um, communicate is any headaches believe it or not such a thing as preeclampsia can occur even six weeks after you've already delivered and preeclampsia is pretty major also it's 
it's one of the leading causes of maternal death, unfortunately, high blood pressure, pre- preeclampsia. Um, so what we want is to make sure patients are not having persistent headaches that do not go away with Tylenol. Now, the headache also can be such a thing as a spinal headache, we call it, or a tension, you know, where if you have some caffeine and it gets a little bit better, that kind of lets us know a little bit more about the headache. But any type of headache that's not going away. Now, it could be that the mother has a long history of migraine, and it really could be just a migraine headache. But we still want to know about it. We want to know about any fever, any fever at all that you have. Prior to having a C-section, we definitely give antibiotics. But also, we give antibiotics in vaginal deliveries for something called GBS. We do that for the baby's sake. But now in, in delivery, let's say the mother had a temperature. Well, we want to find out, does the mother now have something else that we call endometritis, meaning infection inside the uterus? Well, we want to know about fevers, temperatures. And these are things that are a little bit easier for us to know about because we're taking vital signs so frequently. So we'll, we will typically see them, but we want to we, we want to know also if the patient feels them. If the patient feels as though, oh, I'm not able to ambulate, I'm not walking well, um, I want to know about that. We want to know about that. Especially, especially for um, uh, blood clots. Again, pregnancy has an increased risk of blood clot, and pregnancy um, uh, can even have that increased risk all the way up to six week post delivery. Um, you still have a lot of physiology. I tell patients that you are physiologically a different person when you're pregnant than when you were not. You physiologically truly are a different person. A lot of things work a little differently for you. So you need to be mindful of that. And, and blood clot is an increased risk. So we want to know about that. And we really want to know about that before you leave the hospital. Now, if it happens after you leave the hospital, we still want to know about it. We still want you to come right back either to our office or to the hospital setting, to the emergency room um, setting. We want you to let us know because we can simply do an ultrasound of the leg to simply rule that out. And that is something that can actually be life-threatening. And that is something that um, if you do have a blood clot, the sooner we detect it, the better, because then we can give you what we call anticoagulants, medications that will thin out the blood and um, typically thin out the blood clot to relieve the blood clot. So we um, want to know about that. That's very important. We want to know about pain in the in the belly area. Um, again, thinking about any type of infection. Now, typically when you breastfeed, believe it or not, you tend to have a little bit more um, contractions. You know, that's kind of normal. That's kind of a natural phenomenon um, that does uh, occur. So sometimes, yeah, I have more cramping when I breastfeed and we expect that. Ibuprofen tends to help with that if you're a patient that's able to take ibuprofen. Um, and uh, we want to know about urine and we are um, testing that when we do um, uh, for our patients who have C-sections. But believe it or not, even those who do not have C-sections um, can still have um, what we call kind of sleepy um, bladder a little bit. And that's, that's not a, a, a true name for it. But sometimes the bladder just needs to wake up a little bit, even having a vaginal delivery. So you can have some urinary retention. We want to be sure that you can void even having a vaginal delivery. And we were checking for that. We we're checking to see your void after you deliver. And if you're able to um, void spontaneously on your own and void enough. These are things that we look for to make sure that you can do them before you ever leave the hospital. Now, if you have any other questions or concerns, let's say that you have a history of diabetes and your sugars are not, you know, kind of out, out of order, um, 
We always want to check those and make sure that you're stable. Some patients have what we call gestational diabetes, where they do not need to continue being on finger sticks after they deliver. Some patients have pre-gestational, where they do need to switch their medications from maybe insulin to not oral, or, or dip, there's different scenarios for diabetes. So we definitely want that to be well-controlled and managed. Some people actually have... Um, uh, uh, and then a pump, an insulin pump um, that needs to be managed before they actually leave. So there's multiple different things. Any concerns at all, we want patients to be vocal and to say, you know what, I'm not feeling well, or this is what's going on, um, because we do need to know about it. And um, it's actually pretty important to, act, to to say this, because there are some patients that actually are vocal and unfortunately don't and did not have not been listened to. Um, and this is um, actually, I read this article not too long ago, I believe this was on Serena Williams, where she was actually vocal, very vocal to her doctors after her delivery and um, was not checked on properly and uh, potentially could have had um, um, a a blood clot that was not caught. It was only caught really by her, by her persistence. Um, and that blood clot could have lodged to her lungs and potentially caused tremendous harm um, to herself. So someone that huge, that big, being you know, repeatedly saying, hey, something is not right, please listen to me, still not getting the appropriate attention, that's disheartening. Um, but I definitely recommend all patients to open and be very vocal and say, hey, this, this, I don't feel right, or this is what have you, because there are some tests that we can definitely do that can save a life. And so um, just remembering her story, and I'm grateful that she shared her story, actually. Um, I, I, I want to encourage patients to share anything that they're not white, that they're not feeling good about. And even most patients actually will have a follow-up most of the time after vaginal delivery, it's six weeks. After C-section, it's two weeks. But let's say that there's blood pressure issues. Typically, we want patients to come back within a couple days or, or one week, depending upon their blood pressure issues. But there's nothing wrong with seeing your doctor in the in, um, back much sooner. Um, and say, you know what, I need to see you sooner, or even just call it, you know, hey, this does not seem right, I, I need to be seen. And if you feel as though you're not being heard, an urgent care center, an ER center to, to start off, and then, you know, keep, keep being vocal, keep saying what your needs are. <laughs>